Hi, uh, Mark and Dan. I'm long-time listener. My name's Warren. So listening to your uh, podcast about the 12.1, the rock comic Spider-Man, and I'm just amazed how well that holds up. The songs are great. The story was great. Good stuff. Keep up the good work. So make 2020 a good spider year. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. Be in 'm dapper Dan Gavosden and I'm the founder and editor of amazingspidertalk.com and I own every issue of amazing spider-man including the annuals and I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the chasing amazing blog author of 100 things spider-man fans should know and do before they die and I too own every issue of amazing spider-man but Dan the annuals don't count but mark does spectacular spider-man count? Absolutely not, except for today, Dan. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for the 13th and final episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Dan, this this season felt longer than like the ending of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't know. I I, I just something something's going on here. <laughs> Lucky number thirteen, Mark. There if we you go. Don't count the point ones. There you go. Yes. Well, if you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not start by subscribing to our show at the first season, which was what about. 30, 26 episodes ago, 39 episodes ago. I don't remember, Dan. A while back. Uh, you can also enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. And on a similar note, at the top of this episode, you heard a message from Warren, one of our listeners who called in to leave us a message about our previous episode. Dan, is that Miles Warren? No, no, it's just Warren, Mark. Don't get too excited. Oh, okay, sorry. Maybe he's a clone of Miles Warren, and they all take the name Warren. I don't know. Now we're now we're really going somewhere. So about Warren, I enjoyed his feedback to our last episode so much that I talked to our editor, Rick, and we kind of came to a decision that we'd like to feature more of the voicemails at the top of the episodes, like one nice voicemail at the beginning of every episode. If you'd like to have your thoughts on our episodes featured in the future, give us a ring at our voicemail hotline at 9REDGOBLIN. Yes, that's 9REDGOBLIN. You heard it here first, folks. The Red Goblin is our hotline. That's 9REDGOBLIN. And let us know your thoughts. And if we like it enough, we may play it at the start of a future episode. We are always the trendsetters, Dan. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Anyway, in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. Well, today, we want to dive into detail about some of the most outlandish stories told during this transitional period by talking about the first real Spider-Man, I'm going to say a dirty word here for uh, the next person on the show, B-title, known as Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. Mark, this podcast has been a long time coming, and we couldn't be more excited to start our first coverage ever of this famous title. We really have not talked about this book at all on this show. I think we talked about the Owl Octopus War once, and that's kind of it. And we make fun of Black Cat sparingly. So today we're going to be talking about issues number one through 18 of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. And these issues can be found just about anywhere. But most importantly, they're all available on the Marvel Unlimited service. But Dan, we could never end this never-ending season alone. So we invited our very first ever guest... 
not not like our first guest today, but like this was like our first guest ever on this podcast. And from the third episode of the Superior Spider Talk, just to give you a bit of context there, and the guy who wrote our spanning spectacular coverage on AmazingSpiderTalk.com, it is none other than Tyler Barless. Welcome back to the show, Tyler. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. It has been a very long time. Very long time. <laughs> I think almost seven years, to, if you believe it at all. Yeah, that's that's crazy. You guys have had a lot of very interesting and exciting guests on this show. Um, I'm not one of those, but I was the first, so that should count for something. <laughs> well, you know, at least we had him before the start of our third season, Dan. So it's not like it's a total bookend to this never-ending season, right? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, Tyler, uh, you know, to make a point we can make about the spectacular Spider-Man series, this might be very in line with your own beliefs, is that, hey, you know, number ones are really important, but in spectacular, they're kind of fine. Um, The series did not start off or the book did not start off great. So um, some of that B title was deserved early on, but it gets better. It got a lot better. Well, I cannot wait to get into all this with you as we we progress into this show, Dan and Tyler. So if you enjoy this podcast and want to help us to continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to issue a special thanks to Jonathan Dickens and Timothy May for joining our Patreon team. All right, Mark, it's time to get your hog skin, slip on your pony toed shoes, join hands with your brother power, and talk about Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider Man. All right, Dan. So I, like we said at the top of the hour, it's all about Spectacular Spider-Man. Today. Excuse me, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, as the book was better known in, in this period. And just to give readers out there a quick overview of what, what the book is we're talking about, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, it launched in 1976. It was designed basically to be the first true Spider-Man B book. Now, Marvel Team-Up, which we talked about earlier this season, that had launched a few years earlier. Not that it wasn't supposed to be in continuity of of Spider-Man, but it was kind of like, it was, you know, more or less kind of like these side stories, Spider-Man teaming up with another hero, and sometimes Spider-Man wasn't in the book at all, like sometimes it was Hulk and another hero. Spectacular, it was like, you know, trying to capitalize on the, the expansion of Spider-Man across all media and popularity, and it was like, let's give this guy a proper second book to star in that would kind of tie in with the amazing Spider-Man in the main series as well. And and Spectacular was actually borrowed from the uh, Spectacular magazine that Stan Lee had created in 1968, which we talked about season two, if I have memory serves. Now, Jerry Conway, who uh, had just wrapped up his his run as the writer on Amazing Spider-Man about a year and change earlier and was just minted as Marvel's new editor-in-chief, was going to be the kind of the creative star on this book with a relative newcomer and and brother of one of Marvel's more established artists, uh, Sal Buscema was going to be doing pencils on the book. The mid to late 70s was kind of a wacky time when it came to Marvel editorial and Jerry ended up both bailing on the book and Marvel within a couple of months of this all happening. So that kind of left things in a rough spot and and that will be reflected on these these first 18 issues here. But before we get into those comics, Tyler, obviously, like we said uh, earlier in our intro, you for a while wrote the Spanning Spectacular column for AmazingSpiderTalk.com. It was one of our first recurring features on the website. You know, this was something, if if memory serves, you came, you came looking to write about. And, you know, I, I got to ask you, so, so what's, what's with Spectacular for you? I mean, what's, what's your connection to the book? I mean, what, what made you want to actually dive into the history of the book when you were writing for Amazing Spider Talk? So, I know we were looking for, at the time, different um, pieces that we could have for Superior Spider Talk. And I think I had tried to do something a little different, like uh, amazing 
uh, friends or something. And I just, I wasn't really enjoying that. And so I thought that this would be a good opportunity to share just something I was noticing amongst, you know, Spider-Man, you know, the, the fandom at large is that everyone focused on the amazing title and paid very little attention, it seemed like, to some of the, the B titles like Spectacular and Web of. During the Clone Saga, there were a bunch more adjective adjectiveless and and a lot of different ones but i always thought spectacular really stood up stood out for all the great talent it had a lot of great writers that would go on to do great things like ron friends and jm dimateus and just a lot of different talent out there there were a lot of great storylines that i think a lot of people kind of ignored because it wasn't on the amazing book um, and then we had sal Bashima and Bill Mantlo, who wrote a good majority of it. And those are just great talents in my mind that created a lot of great stories. So it was a book that I remember when I was younger, right around the Clone Saga that I started to collect. And I collected it over the amazing title right until the the big reboot. So it was something I remember digging back and it was it's easier and cheaper to find back issues for the title. So I've I've just always enjoyed collecting Spectacular and I just kind of felt as if I became the guy to be the apologist for the book and to try to show everyone that it's worth picking up and it's worth collecting and worth reading. It's kind of funny to me and and Dan, I'd love to get you to weigh in on this too. You know, this idea of of Spectacular being the quote unquote B book because it's, you know, it's kind of like, is it a state of mind or is there is there actually something to it? Because on one end, like like Tyler mentioned, there were plenty of good stories. There were plenty of good creators that that worked on this book over the years. I mean, you know, the book gets launched by Jerry Conway, who's considered one of the, you know, the true great contributors to the Spider-Man mythos. And yet this book did develop this reputation, I think, for a reason. I mean, over the years, you know, like starting with Jerry, you know, you had creators kind of bailing on it. I know that Roger Stern, who got his first start on Spider-Man writing Spectacular before jumping over to Amazing, you know, he was promised to work with like artists like John Byrne and Marie Severin. And they both like basically were getting pulled off the book to do bigger projects for other Marvel books. And it's it's just kind of funny to me that like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a B book. And yet Marvel itself seems to kind of treat the book like the redheaded stepchild of the Spider family, don't you think? I mean, clearly they, they would, Amazing was the bestseller and they were wanting to put the best talent on Amazing. It had a lot more stability, I think, later on. But early on, for sure, um, there was a lot of instability. And then until Bashima really came in and became the artist for like seven straight years, they did go through a, a ton of artists. But, you know, from God, I don't know whenever he had his second stint as artist, but from from that point, some point in the mid 80s, all the way until almost the end of the book, he wrote it pretty much or drew it pretty much nonstop. And so I think another cool thing is that when you picked up a spectacular book, you knew it was going to have this artist, love him or hate him, um, which I loved him, even though his style kind of changed later on in the 90s. That was a nice, you know, aspect of Spectacular is that you had this one artist and it was his book. And that's the thing. I feel like this book's worst enemy is often Amazing Spider-Man, which makes sense for a B book. That Like the main title would steal so much of the thunder. But you really felt like this book couldn't use the kind of main roster of villains as consistently as Amazing did. But when you got a creator that really vibed with Sal on this book, I feel like it would often rocket itself above amazing. And I'm sure in future seasons, Mark and I will discuss some of those stories that really do stand out, like the tombstones or the child withins, you know, but anything with like JMD and, and Sal, I think you could easily place above its contemporaries in amazing. And it's just like, it took the right guys to like kind of, whittle away in obscurity doing something amazing and or spectacular even you know th- that's when the book sung to me is like you got someone on here for a while you know like roger stern was doing great things in this book what's the enemy he got pulled to amazing but you know you get someone like jmd to do something for a while and and suddenly this thing starts cooking why don't we start by talking about this first arc on this book because i think like this kind of encapsulates everything that is kind of right and wrong with the concept of spectacular from the get-go because you know here we are like you said we get jerry jerry conway sal buscema i'm assuming sal was doing stuff for marvel at this point this wasn't his first 
true work. It's funny to say Jerry Conway was only 24 at the time this book launched and the editor in chief of Marvel. I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're going to talk about his inconsistency and leaving this title in the middle of a lurch. But like, boy, think about when you were 24, what you were doing. So, you know, Jerry comes in and he brings in one of his creations as the as the first villain, uh, Tarantula. You know, the book was designed to tie in somewhat cohesively to Amazing Spider-Man. And, and they do just that here, right, Dan? Well, sure. I mean, in this arc, we've got Tarantula who seems to be attacking, I think, in, across the various first two issues, if we want to call this the arc, the first two issues where Tarantula is like kidnapping and attacking education figures uh, under the guise of some mysterious person who's blacked out in, uh, in the frame and where we're meant to wonder who this guy is. You know, eventually Craven comes in in issue two and he's also kind of on the hunt for these people or, uh, you know, and, and he's hired by the mob, I believe, or the mo- the Magia to, to take down Spider-Man and, and maybe stop the tarantula. But we're, it's all shrouded in mystery. Am I getting this all correct, Tyler? Yeah, and it, those first two issues, I mean, th- they're okay. I mean, it, you, you could have gone somewhere cool. What I had an issue with is the reveal of the new villain in the third issue, which was after Conway had left, and we get the Lightmaster, who I think is a very pathetic villain to uh, start this title out with. <laughs> yeah, so like Conway leaves, and then Archie Goodwin has to kind of conclude this mystery story, which is like the most Spider-Man thing ever, to have someone else have to finish a mystery created by you know, somebody else. It's pretty par for the course, even if it's not par for the course at this point. And you're right. We get this Lightmaster guy, which is not the best designed character on, on the world. And he's never been teased before in this series. Uh, Tyler, do you know if this was the plan originally? Like, I can't imagine that Jerry would think that this was an exciting reveal for someone that's never been teased. Do you think Archie just kind of had to wrap it up because he didn't know what Jerry was thinking? See, I, I, I don't know. At the end of the second issue, it says, you know, prepare the light master. So I don't know if that had our, if Conway had already left the book by the time that second issue was published and Goodwin said, hey, throw this in here because this is what I'm going to do in the next issue. I don't know for sure. Um, but it, but I've always thought that this light master, um, the costume is just so generic. just like this silhouette with little lines on him and little squiggly eyes and he was a just another mad professor from empire state which it seems like they hire a lot of bad apples out at empire state and (laughs) we i mean we get another we get another one of those in the white tiger arc and just a few issues from from this so i i don't know if it was conway's plan or not but it 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 kind of just put a damper on the that entire three issue arc to start the title off i always found it humorous that the third issue's cover says uh, you know, a mystery revealed also introducing the light master. And it's like, well, who could it be? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like what the, that issue, the Dicko Lee issue where the prowler or not the prowler, the looter is illustrated. And I think, I think the story was Stanley didn't know what Dicko was doing with this new villain. And I think like the, the teaser at the end of the issue was like, this next issue, this is a villain so amazing, we don't even know who he is yet, or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking about, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a, like, if you're going to launch this new title, like, way to shoot yourself in the foot out of the get-go. But, like, you know, Tyler, you're right. The first two issues are really strong, and they do fit in, Mark, like you were saying, in between the issues of Amazing Spider-Man. It directly references what happened in the previous issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And, you know, I think when this book is working really well, that's actually when, you know, like, like you know, wh- when they're doing that kind of thing, when, when it really feels like a part of the main story. It's funny because, you know, not to jump ahead, but in issue 16, if you read the letters page, there's an editorial note that says, don't worry, we're going to get this book back on track and it's going to go back to the way it was when it first started with, you know, tying into Amazing Spider-Man. And, and it's like, boy, you know, 16 issues in, like we're already admitting that the vision was compromised and that they need to get back towards the original vision. And I think ultimately they do eventually really 
do a better job of tying this book into amazing. Should it be kind of a loosely connected thing or like, I mean, like I always think of the 90s where, you know, all of the Spider-Man B books were interconnected and it was like the weekly saga where, you know, the story would start in amazing and then go into web of and spectacular and adjectiveless and then kind of round robin through and. I have distinct memories as a reader in that time period of almost kind of getting frustrated by that because I felt like if I wasn't buying every single book, which I know is obviously Marvel strategy, but that I would like get lost in the story. There are periods where when the books kind of very gently play off each other, but are still their own separate entities, I can kind of appreciate them for their own merits. And I'm kind of curious as a, as a, reader of of spider-man where where your stance lies on that reading these old books after the fact it's better for them to just be their own self-contained story because when he's making references and what happened to amazing if they don't put oh this was happening and either way i still have to go to you know spider fan or something and see oh what issue was this what was going on here and and this and that at the time i'm sure that they wanted more that i know that they did the fans at the time did and then when they started doing it i mean the first time they did what you were talking about going jumping from book to book to book that was craven's last stunt right that's what started that was the first one that ever did that and then they started doing it in the clone saga on every single thing and yeah that's when i first started reading spider-man and that was not a great way to go about things i don't I don't think so back to these first 18 issues, Tyler, is it your preference that one writer writes a book for like 18 issues or do you like a dozen writers writing a book <laughs> for 18 issues? Yeah, I don't know anyone who, who likes that. Um, no, it, it, it does feel very, you know, disconjointed. I don't know. You, it, it, it doesn't feel like a living, breathing book whenever you're you get a story and then the next thing you know, it's a fill in story or it's a. Uh, reprint from marvel team up or it's a story that probably should have been in marvel team up and it just it didn't work out until mantlo really started to get in a groove 20 or so issues in so mark who are some of these writers that we got on this title through the first like 20 18 20 issues that we're talking about here i mean obviously jerry conway kind of started off archie goodwin took over for jerry and then we get jim shooter gets a writing credit bill mantlo who would basically kind of settle in as the writer for a while on this book but he he's on a few issues and then chris claremont gets pulled into an issue <laughs> and then it's back to mantlo for a bunch but but meanwhile biscama is the the main guy on art I'm, I'm curious do we want to talk a little bit about sal here especially kind of like early sal and how he was became different from 80s sal and then eventually 90s sal sure yeah i love sal's work you know this is maybe the least sal of his work like it seems to me like he's doing a bit of a John Romita senior knockoff but like if it's a knockoff it's a really good one and I think on Peter's face that's the place I measure it the most you can see the salisms like slowly creep in is that how you feel Tyler yeah oh, I mean he's very distinctive and I do agree I mean his style changed through the years but yeah in the faces you can you can definitely tell that that is something that really hasn't changed through the through the decades. I can tell his style always when it's a villain screaming and there's a bit of spittle that connects the top teeth to the bottom teeth. That's like a classic Sal signature. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I had said a few minutes ago, Matlo kind of settled in as, as the writer after a while. And as kind of wacky as some of these early stories are, I, I, I do think there's something to be said about, Bill Mantlo kind of embodying the maybe the disrespect that Spectacular gets as a series or or maybe to be more polite, the underrated nature of it. Because like when you actually look at like Mantlo's body of work on this book, there's some really f fun stuff. And like, you know, th this is a guy that I don't think gets a lot of credit. I mean, he doesn't get a lot of credit, period, I think, sometimes in Marvel, even though he made some huge contributions. I, he he very rarely gets kind of put in the echelon of, of, of great Spider-Man writers, but there's some there's some really cool stuff uh, on Spectacular that Matt, Matt Lowe penned. I mean, don't you agree, Tyler? I, I do agree. So so what do you guys think as far as Mantlo as a, a top-tier Spider-Man writer? Do you... Do you put him up there? Do you guys put him up there? I mean, you guys are kind of the definitive voice on that, I think. 
I wouldn't put him quite that high for me personally. I think he tends to go a little too fantastic for my taste. I mean, I think his like team up stuff is kind of indicative of like a lot of his stuff that bled into spectacular. And sometimes I feel like that voice doesn't a hundred percent fit with Spider-Man as much as I might really enjoy those stories. I mean, Mark and I often talk about the death of Gene DeWolf storyline and how we feel like it's like a daredevil story that found its way into the pages of Spider-Man. And for me, as much as I enjoy a lot of Mantlo stuff, I never like, I don't think I put him in the upper echelon because I don't know that like, his version of Spider-Man meshes with what I think of when I think of Spider-Man. That's not to say I don't really enjoy because I'm going to go to bat for some of his stories here that we're going to talk about. But that would be why I would keep him out of my like A-list roster. It's kind of tough because you also have to wonder if, if Matt Lowe was handicapped by the, the sheer context of the fact that he wasn't working on the main book. You know, like he wasn't, he was probably discouraged from using the usual roster because I feel like when you look at some of the stories that he would do again kind of post the the grouping of issues we're talking about here but like something like Owl Octopus Wars which came a little later when he did get to work with like kind of the A-listers like there was some some really compelling stuff there that he ended up writing and and you know I know we and again we'll talk about this in a later season Dan like there the stuff with the black cat relationship some of it started to get a little ridiculous but I think like in its in its infancy I feel like Matlow really kind of hit upon something there that yeah and and he was kind of building off of what like Roger Stern was doing with it initially and to a lesser degree Marv Wolfman it's no if I was like really trying to like make a definitive list of like top five or ten writers. I don't know if Matlo uh, would immediately jump to mind. I could make a case for him in the, uh, certainly in like the top ten. But I think part of it part of it is being limited by the fact that you know rather than being able to work with the likes of the Osbournes and Doc Ock and you know the Sinister Six and all that. You know he he. <laughs> he was writing about Razorback and White Tiger and uh, Sister Son and, and Brother Power. You know what I mean? So uh, it, it's kind of hard to hold hold it totally against him when you know he 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 didn't get to use the the same cast that folks like DeFalco and Stern and others would later get to use. Yeah, that's a really rousing defense of uh, Bill Mantlo, and I, I think you're probably right about about the way you put it there because you know I, I I mean I think it's funny because I read his stuff and to me it seems like a guy who has a really solid grasp on all of the Marvel universe like he finds a way to bring stuff like you and I like to joke that any Spider-Man story that involves the high evolutionary is not a Spider-Man story and like that's the kind of story Bill Mantlo would tell right because he he likes bringing everything into this connected universe and I both respect that and also kind of are like, get the high evolutionary out of my Spider-Man comics. It, when he does focus on stuff like Dr. Octopus, the books are really strong. We talked about the Tarantula and Craven mis- and, uh, story that's in the first two issues, and then the Lightmaster reveal in issue three. And then, you know, on the point that we were just talking about, we've got you know this story, Spider-Kill, which is this uh, vulture story. You know, the vulture powers himself up again and... Is going after these gang members. You know, the gang themselves hire Hitman to take both him and Spider-Man out. And that gets two issues. You know, those are fun stories. And I, I actually think really great for seeing Sal Buscema's work. I always liked Sal's Vulture. And I think, like, it really comes through here. Tyler, do you have any memories of this story? So the, the Hitman, I mean, is just a Punisher knockoff. And he's trying to kill Spider-Man just... So Vulture doesn't have the opportunity to do so. I don't know. There's just not a lot that I thought was real endearing in, in those two issues. Well, if you didn't like that, then I bet you'd like issue six of Spectacular Spider-Man, which was just a reprint of Marvel Team Up number three. Mark, that's got to mean that it's essential to our collection. It's totally. It's so essential that, I mean, this is like the Amazing Spider-Man annual number six, but better in my opinion, right, Dan? <laughs> What is it with these number six issues? Just reprinting other stuff. There you go. I mean, what else can you do? 
they clearly clearly the book the book was already on thin ice at this point if they were like what are we gonna do well we're gonna pull a marvel team up and throw it out there as a new issue i mean my goodness that's a scramble if i ever heard one but then they kind of like try to swing it in so like it's a morbius story and then they continue the morbius story in issues seven and eight where morbius is infected by this thing called the empathoid uh tyler I'm going to throw this at you and you can you can deflect. Do, do you know what the empathoid is or can you explain that to our audience? It is a uh, a being that feeds on emotions and takes over people's bodies, which he did so that he could bring Morbius back to Earth from some planet that he was on for some reason. And uh, then he is. Do you just want me to go all the way? He's defeated by. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's. This is so. This is so moving. <laughs> so uh, Spider-Man has the great idea to to bring this um, creature to a football game because there is so much emotion in a football game that it will surely kill him, and it did. So that's that. That's it. There you go. I think this is the point I was trying to make earlier about <laughs> the writing in this book. Is that like. Like the empathoid to me is just like the furthest thing from a Spider-Man villain there there could hey, ever be. Hey, but this be. wasn't Mantlo. This was uh, this was good one, right? <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Point made. Point made. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of Mantlo, he comes on in issue nine to introduce his character, White Tiger, into the pages of of Spectacular Spider-Man and the first kind of like colored version of the character, right? Because White Tiger's book was in black and white before this yes yes so this it's, it was a character that Mantlo created in the uh, deadly hands of kung fu which was a black and white comic anthology um, that they were producing at the time and so him and actually george perez created the the white tiger character so this is the first issue i think that Mantlo writes on spectacular and he immediately brings this character that he created into the pages of spider-man and I know that people have issues with White Tiger. He's not always looked real fondly upon, but I, I thought this was uh, t- two of the best issues in amongst these first 20. I, I like these two issues. And I like the White Tiger character, even though he, you know, he's, he's dated. He's a Hispanic character that uses a lot of like Spanish double talk where he's says it in English and then says it in Spanish so that everybody knows that, that he speaks Spanish, I guess. But I, I did like these two issues. How about you guys? It's just funny. Like, White Tiger is just one of those... It, it, the character has such an interesting legacy because he ends up getting used frequently in Spectacular, especially under Mantlo, correct? Yes, yeah. He is kind of a, a sidekick of sorts over the next 10 issues or so. And then he leaves because Peter isn't going to graduate. He's not a teacher's assistant or drops out of college or something. And then Roger Stern brings him back and then kind of writes him out of the Marvel Universe altogether always kind of strikes me because it's it's one of these characters and and you know i actually had to kind of remember that he his roots actually go back to deadly hands of kung fu because it's like i i kind of almost associate him as a spider-man character because of this run of issues here which is just you know kind of kind of interesting to me because you know kind of like the way he works here especially through you know ESU and everything, it kind of works, you know, like it it feels it feels organic in its own way. The White Tiger character itself has kind of reappeared even more recently in a a big way, you know, especially in Spider-Man's world in the cartoon series. You know, the White Tiger as a female now is kind of like one of the reoccurring sidekicks there. So, like, I think, you know, this is kind of has some historical precedent, you know, in regards to the story. You know, I, I think it's an okay one. It's sort of a remix of the crisis on campus issues from Amazing Spider-Man, where there's like protests going on and kind of twisted politics on the ESU campus. And I like all of that stuff. I think it gets a little bogged down in explaining the origin of White Tiger and all the various characters from Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. But, you know, there's a lot going on in this story. It's not just two villains beating up on each other. You know, there's a classic misunderstanding between Spider-Man and White Tiger that causes them to fight each other. You know, but that stuff is not, I think, worn out by this point in time. So the next issue is really interesting. It's the only issue of Amazing Spider-Man or Spectacular Spider-Man that Claremont wrote. And it's this 
Medusa fill in issue. It's really not a great issue, like uh, especially for what we'd expect from Claremont, especially considering how strong those Marvel team up issues were. This one almost feels like a Marvel team up issue that was just kind of slipped out of that book and, in, and into this one. But, you know, there's some fun stuff here, like Spider-Man fighting Medusa on top of a roller coaster. And he has to kind of stop the cars from careening out of control. But it's a pretty standard, like, superhero misunderstanding thing involving them chasing a MacGuffin. So, I mean, not one that you should, like, kill yourself over. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, we always talk about how we wish Claremont got a run on Amazing Spider-Man or a, another kind of, like, top-tier Spider-Man comic. And this is it. This is the issue. Number 11. Well, the one time. <laughs> yeah. Wah, wah. But then... After this issue, you know, because, you know, you got to take a breather before you're going to get to the best story of all time. And that <laughs> is issues 12 through 15, the brother power, sister son issues, also known as the ones that introduce Razorback, my favorite character of all time, into the pages of Spider-Man. Mark, you and I have a history of talking about this, maybe not on the podcast you know, I think we've gone back and forth about my love of Razorback for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I think, only rivaled by your love of the Stegron Christmas story that, you know, the, the story that brought us together, Dan. I, I got to be honest with you, like, I, I there, oh, my goodness, many, many years ago, I remember you texting me about... You got to read these issues of Spectacular with this guy Razorback in it. Have you ever read these issues? And I had, I honestly at that point had not. So I went out and I read those issues and I was like, wow, this is really insane. <laughs> this guy drives around in a Mack truck. <laughs> like, what, yes. what is this? And then like, but, and I kind of thought you were just, your love for it was kind of maybe a little farcical, but as time has gone on, I've realized, oh wait, no, like you really love Razorback and this story. And I, and I I feel like for our podcast audience, Dan, not just your Twitter feed, you got to lay it all out there. What is it, man? What is it with you and Razorback? <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, and Tyler, feel free to jump in if you have any feelings on this. But I, like, I, I, not the same as yours. Okay. Well, so <laughs> I, I think, I think it's important to note before we even get into this, that like, you know, this, you know, series is what, 12 issues deep we're a year in you know and not if you if not if you include the you know marvel uh, team up reprint and throughout that run there's been this kind of th sub thread where flash thompson has been slowly kind of reconnecting with shashan the the woman that he met when he was in vietnam and and saved i guess her and her father's life from a bombing in vietnam and you know, he rediscovers her when they're out at this, like, I guess, like Vietnamese restaurant, which would only make sense. She's like serving there, but she's not allowed to speak to him. So something mysterious is going on. And throughout like a half dozen issues or so, we keep getting check ins with Flash Thompson kind of getting increasingly manic about like what is going on with Shashan? Why can't I speak to her? And we find out eventually that she's married to this guy named Ahmed Korba. Uh, and he is this kind of Fu Manchu wearing bald headed guy. He's like very aggressive towards her. And this is the story where it's revealed that he is like kind of leading this cult, or at least we suspect at first he's leading this cult as this character, brother power and this kind of side character, sister son, which it turns out is Shashan. So we've got this scenario where like flash and Peter are trying to save Shashan from this kind of abusive husband of hers that they suspect she's married to out of some kind of like uh, guise of threat or something like that, you know, and they use, they hold hands and they can shoot light beams out of their chests. You know, it's crazy. And, you know, you read the first issue of this story and you think to yourself, okay, I know where all the pieces are, right? I know all the chess pieces that are going to possibly un be on the board here, right? We're going to stop this cult this brainwashing cult of the brother's son. We're going to save Shashan. But then, like, no. Every new issue that Mantlo writes of this thing, it gets taken, like, 10 degrees further into insanity. And, like, this to me is just a guy, like, completely unrestrained in his writing. And it's, it's a kind of similar formula to some of his stories in Marvel Team-Up, where they would just, you'd start off with, like, a time travel story, 
and then it would go into like Salem witch trials and then it would go into like demonic figures from hell and it would just keep of, and then it would, like, the vision would show up, right? You didn't know where your story was going to go. And this is how I feel about this. And so for me, the wild card that ties all of this together is in the second issue. So issue 13, you get the appearance of Razorback, who is this like guy from Texarkana and he lets you know about it, who speaks in the most like lovingly like stereotypical way and he's Razorback. He's this dude in a giant hog costume who drives a uh, you know a Mack truck called the Big Pig and he like admittedly came to New York because he like admires superheroes and so just made a costume for himself out of nowhere and he he's got an electrified mane but like you think okay that'll be cool explain me the tech behind that oh no he just like took parts of a radio and fixed them up to electrify his backbone or something like that it's insanity but he's so charming he's just got a smile on his face he gets into a fight with spider-man at one point just because he's like read other Marvel team up issues. Like he's like, Hey, I know you fight all your other team up partners. So I thought I'd fight you just for the hell of it. And it's like, how could you not love this guy? Tyler, did I do a stirring job defending Razorback? You did. You did. I remember on the, uh, on the website, you wrote an article professing your love to this, to this, uh, this arc here. So I've, I've always known that you've, you've liked Razorback and the, this crazy arc too. For me, it, it, it's just way too over the top. And I, I love Bill Mantlo and I really like a lot of the things he's written. And uh, once he comes back to this book, to the spectacular book after Roger Stern left, his stories were, were way more grounded. I, I, I couldn't get into this. It's just too wild, too zany. And then the Razorback character, I'm from Oklahoma. So <laughs> when we have decisions <laughs> like this of, of people from, you know, Arkansas, Oklahoma area, it's, it's, it's pretty cringeworthy. So I, I just, I, I can't love Razorback like you can, Dan. I'm sorry. I will say that I have the support of Jason Latour in this. You know, my love of Razorback has gone so far that, you know, we've had this ongoing joke with Jason Latour on our show about how I just want a comic that has Spider-Ham and Razorback eating barbecue together. And it went so far that in the Spider-Ham annual that came out like last year, he even had David LaFuente draw in a scene where Spider-Ham and Razorback were eating barbecue together. Nice. And it, like, it came to life for me. So now like Razorback and I are tied at the hip. There's no escape for me right. now. Like I am full on Razorback. But like, you're right. This story, it is so insane that like, you can't really get invested in it. And I think that's my love of it. It's just like, I can't think of a Spider-Man story that goes quite as bonkers as this. Like you get brother power, sister son, and you think, you know, everything. Then you get Razorback and you're like, there couldn't be more. And then suddenly the hate monger shows up back from the dead and he's the big bad. But then, nope, it's not the hate monger. Lest you suspect it was him. No, it's the man beast the villain to the high evolutionary that's really the hate monger. Uh, you're like, how far are we going with this? It just keeps <laughs> and, growing. And the, ice, the icing on the cake, Dan, of course, is you reminded me of this earlier this afternoon before we started recording. What is the title of issue number 14? <laughs> it is Killing Me Softly with His Hate. That is that is that is poetry, Dan. That is utter poetry. <laughs> it's like he, Bill Mantlo, like heard you know, "Killing Me Softly" with his song, like while he was writing this, and was just like, "That's it. That's the title. That's the title we're going." With. If you notice, though, actually, he really does like to use famous song titles as the titles of his stories. He does it quite a bit. I guess it's better than My Killer, the My Car. <laughs> That's right, a great right. title, Dan. I, that, that is actual poetry, in my opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the brother, power, sister, son issues of this book that's 12 through 15. You know, like if you haven't read it, like I, I wouldn't tell you to rush out and read it. But like if you want something truly bizarre and you want to kind of get in on my joke, those are the ones to check out. And, you know, Razorback has kind of come back here and there over the years. I believe during House of M, he lost his mutant powers. Does, do either of you know what Razorback's mutant power is? 
<laughs> Couldn't tell you. I, I don't know. Do you know? <laughs> I do, actually. Razorback's mutant power is that he can drive any vehicle like he gets in the first time, he automatically knows how to drive it. So there's actually a series with him and Manwolf and She-Hulk flying around like as like guardians of the galaxy with him flying a spaceship because he automatically knew how to fly a spaceship. But now, unfortunately, Razorback is powerless and he's just a dude in a hog <laughs> costume. With electrified mane. And I think, <laughs> yes, and I think uh, during the clone conspiracy... Or during the whole, like, Roderick Kingsley is selling people villains' costumes, another dude bought Razorback's costume, probably on cheap discount, and has been kind of wearing that around the Marvel Universe currently. You know, Buford Hollis, Razorback, I'm pouring one out for you. Uh, you're, I'm a big fan. Dan, it's taken three seasons and seven years of recording to finally get this moment, Dan. I, 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 I congratulate you for getting here. <laughs> I feel like I got something really big off my chest. <laughs> as long as it's not off your electrified mane. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So uh, what came up next here? Tyler, we got issue 16. You want to tell us about that one? It's not very memorable. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure who who this Elliot Magan is. I don't know what they've done previously. It, it features the Beatle who's trying to steal something. It's There's not a lot to really be said about this issue. I, I didn't think. No, it's pretty much on the same level as the Claremont Medusa story. It's just kind of a whelp, and here's another issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. Hope you're enjoying it. Although there is something in the letter section that you alluded to earlier, right, Dan, which is basically like like Marvel's apology for <laughs> which is probably very fitting after the this this brother power sister son story of like, wait, Hold on, guys. We're sorry that this book is so off the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, their apology aside, things would get only weirder in the next two issues because it's a, a team up with Angel. But the weird thing about it is so like Marvel had like a champions book and that book was kind of unceremoniously canceled. And in the back of the book, they promised, I think, that in an upcoming Avengers issue, they would detail what happened to break up the champions. But they didn't even do that. So they threw it into Spectacular Spider-Man. And, you know, we've got this kind of story where it literally starts where Peter Parker is walking down the street and a pane of glass flies out of nowhere and nearly kills him just walking down the street. And somehow Angel is involved and there's like a character that looks like Professor X in bandages that is controlling Iceman, who's in like a, a Iron Man-esque suit. And so like Spider-Man fights Angel and then he fights Iceman and it feels very much like a Marvel team-up issue. But then like half of each of the issues is spent kind of recapping what happened off panel about the champions and why they're no longer a team. So even here, like Spider-Man is not really a driving force behind these issues. But uh, historical note: this is these are the issues where Flash and Shashan finally start to date, and and like okay, not that Shashan is like this huge part of the Spider-Man mythos, but you know, like that relationship that that went for quite a while, and like kind of peaked during a critical period in the 80s when, you know, during the Hobgoblin mystery reveal, correct? Yeah, I believe so. You know, Tyler, you know, a lot of the side characters kind of get developed in spectacular, you know, in interesting ways. You know, you've got like Robbie Robertson having like a major story arc here. Do you feel like Shashan was a bigger presence in this book? Maybe. I know that she appeared a lot in these early issues. And then even further on, I remember there was some sort of arc where she thought that he was cheating on him, but he was really playing like minor league football or something. I think that was mostly in spectacular. She was around a long time for sure. And I do feel like she, she popped up in, in spectacular quite a bit. So those are kind of the big issues that we're talking about. I mean, this is just kind of the opening transition of this book, a bit of a rocky opening, I think as we've kind of found out here, but like, you know, again, spectacular and important book in the history of Spider-Man's whole mythos. You know, there's some fun things that happen in here, like uh, the Shashan thing. I like to point out the kind of the great scene where Glory Grant gets a job at the Bugle in issue number two, where like everybody's like, don't go in there with Jonah. He's going to like chew your head off. And then, of course, 
she has like Jonah eating out of her hand, which I think is a really charming moment. And that's very Jerry Conway for you. Immediately following these issues uh, that we're talking about. So I guess this would technically be season four territory, Dan, if we even want to dare to think of it. But there were some uh, interesting historic moments. We had the first appearance of Carry On in issue 25. Now, Carry On, of course, uh, for Max Carnage fans. Although I'm going to actually I'm going to lob this to you, Tyler. Do you want to explain the, the origins of Carry On and Miles Warren and all that? Because like. I've tried to explain. Do you, you want to get into that today? Do you really want to get into that tonight? Uh, well, <laughs> 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 can we can we do it? Can we do it briefly? Is it possible? <laughs> uh, maybe if, if I can really remember. Um, but I do want to point out that earlier I said Mantle likes to name his stories after songs, and the introduction of Carry On was called Carry On My Wayward Son. I just want to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> That's actually <Yeah>. clever. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Carry on the Carry On saga was right after they did the the Daredevil Spider-Man team up, and I really think this is where Bill Mantlo and maybe the book in general really started to get into a, a nice groove. I, I really liked the Carry On saga and had White Tiger in it as as the sidekick. Uh, Carry On was it like a Miles Warren clone that stayed in his like a, some sort of chamber and aged really really rapidly, and then when he came out, he was like a uh, I don't know, like an undead clone, but he knew all the stuff that Miles Warren knew. So he knew that Spider-Man was Peter Parker and was coming after revenge for him. Um, I think this was the first time um, that anyone, I'm pretty certain anyone had tackled the, the clone saga stuff since that original clone saga. This was the first time we had seen any anything of Miles Warren or really any talk of any of that clone stuff that I, I remember. And I thought it was a good arc. Also, in the the same breath, I guess, right before this, I think the Daredevil arc really goes right into Carry On. And um, this is the first time Frank Miller had ever drew Daredevil and would go on to, you know, to be the most famous Daredevil um, illustrator and writer. Definitely of historical significance. And yeah, it's I, I actually I do think this is a really cool story. I, I, I do like how it plays with the clone, the clone elements really for the first time. I, I, I sometimes like when... I try and describe the clone saga from the 90s. And, you know, we always kind of go back to those Jerry Conway ASM issues. But like, yeah, these carry on issues are kind of also essential in kind of the origins of, of the story that would become the saga down the line. And then, yeah, that dare, those Daredevil issues are awesome. I mean, you know, like you could just see Miller's talent for the character right away and like the sonar and how that was used. I mean, I I I. I really love those issues. I don't, I don't have, I've never been able to get my hands on a couple of hard copies of those. Have, do, do you have those yet, Dan? I know you're, you've been collecting spectacular. I do not have those yet, but I look forward to picking them up. One yeah. Day. You probably got to pay a little bit of an upcharge on them because of the, the Miller connection. <laughs> sure. But like Tyler said, the funding about collecting spectacular is really that nothing really ever gets that expensive. Like I think even issue one, you can find for like 30 bucks, you know, Versus like, you know, issue 100 of Amazing is 30 bucks. You know, you've really got to kind of go, you know, higher up in the numbers before you start getting to those kind of cheap prices, if you will. $30 is not cheap for a comic. But, you know, that's kind of the the end of the beginning of, you know, the spectacular Spider-Man. Tyler, you know, before we kind of sign off here, you know, do you have any favorite eras of this book that you would point people to checking out? Oh, there's there's quite a few. I like the that second era of of Bill Mantlo. I mean, I like the like the Roger Stern issues. Those are all great, and a lot of what he was doing in Spectacular, he brought into his you know amazing run on Amazing. Um, but then when Mantlo took over the book again from him, I really enjoyed that era where he did the Owl Octopus. He we we saw him uh, bring bring uh, Cloak and Dagger, create Cloak and Dagger at that time. I liked. The Peter David era, era. Um, even the stuff he did after the the death of Gene DeWolf, I thought a lot of that was really interesting. And then everything JMD did on the book, he had two different stints himself. He had a stint where he did it with uh, Bashima before he went to Amazing. And then after the end of the Clone Saga, he was on the book for a couple of years. Um, and I really enjoy those issues as well. Do you feel like volumes two and three have kept the kind of spirit of spectacular Spider-Man alive? 
volume three is is new is that is that current or relatively current it's chip zadarsky's run on the book. oh yeah yeah i have i have not read that i haven't really been keeping up lately unfortunately and fortunately or unfortunately depending on your take on it dan i mean there is a big reveal in the zadarsky run that and that that's now playing out regularly in asm right right like that's one of the biggest things i think to ever happen in a spectacular book you know that that found its way ultimately into amazing and so like and i think it kind of caught people off guard because they were so used to the book being a b title yeah and we're glad that you had time to join us today to talk about the the these books of yesteryear i mean it's been a lot of fun yeah definitely thanks so much for having me on guys Thanks again to all of you for joining us for our 13th and final episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, what, what's next? What's next for the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, I think we can all agree that season three of the show was excellent, but also really long. So Mark and I are trying to change things for season four of the show and try to get it out quicker for everyone We have also a ton of new ideas for the show that we want to implement to make it a better experience. So we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus as we do between the seasons, but we really want to use that time to line up content for the next round of things so that these can come out more regularly and you guys can kind of not bug us about taking a year for a whole season. Uh, Actually, I think we spent 13 months on this one, so I apologize. But look, we have, I think, like 15 episodes in this season, so so not bad if you include the point once. In the meantime, for everybody at home, keep listening to the episodes we put out during the break because we never truly stop. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for our announcement episode that will detail all the exciting things we'll be covering in season four of the show. It's going to happen, Mark. Season four of Amazing good, Spider-Talk. Good gravy. I hope so. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 38. We may be taking a break from our seasonal content, but all the Patreon content will continue week after week. So if you find yourself missing Dan and I, and how could you not, head on over there for hundreds of episodes to check out. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews as they come out. Plus, the guys over at Untold Talks of Spider-Man are going to be launching a new program covering their takes on essential Spider-Man stories that you won't want to miss. Plus, for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man as well. Like Mark said, they're going to be doing a new kind of Patreon show where they give their own kind of essentials list like Mark and I did and talk about some of the comics that they can't cover on their more uh, obscure Spider-Man show. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Uh, The link in the description of these episodes was broken for a couple months. So if you tried to join the Slack and it didn't work out for you, check it out now because I fixed it. And thanks for everybody who let me know that it wasn't working. Also, a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless, web of, sensational, everything else editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your work? You can find links to all of my work at rickcoast.com or modernaudiodrama.com. At modernaudiodrama.com, you can listen to The Behemoth, which is told through the eyes of Madison as she follows a towering creature across America. You can also find the superhero audio drama Inhale, as well as many others. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rick Coast. Thanks, Dan. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Tyler. Thank you again for joining us after nearly seven years. If people were to want to follow you online or read your work online, where might they be able to do so? So um, you can follow me online uh, on Twitter at uh, Tyler B, the letter B, good, with an E at the end. So Tyler B, good. Um, Also, if you want to read my Spider-Man writing, uh, my Spanning Spectacular uh, series is still on AmazingSpiderTalk.com, I believe, right? And uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I still have my writing up on spiderfan.org. Um, I'm sorry that they were mean to you, Mark, but um, <laughs> they are still running <laughs> as well. Um, they still have uh, reviews for Spectacular Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man, all the, all the titles. So uh, that's where you can find my work. It's a great site, too, if you haven't already been to Spiderfan before. Yeah, absolutely. It's like kind of the historic resource for all things spider-man well mark uh if we wanted to follow 
all of your wonderful exploits online. Where well, would you if, do so? if you want to see for yourself what you think of my book, you can still buy it. 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, wherever books are sold. And of course, you can find me online on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Dan, what about you? Yeah, you can find me online on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk if you haven't already followed me there. And yeah, you know, I'm always kind of writing about new things and finding little tidbits in Spider-Man comics that I think are worth kind of pointing out. Like d- during this whole reread of Spectacular Spider-Man, I was posting silly things like Craven using a vine to swing around New York City. Like, does he just carry vines with him? Or are there weird climates in New York in the 70s? Who knows? So check me out there at, at Sup Spider Talk on Twitter. But Mark, you know, Craven swinging on a vine, as important as that is to discuss and make clever observations about, it's never going to be nearly as important as the motto that is the heart and lifeblood of our show. Mark, what is that motto? Of course, that motto is, with great podcasts, there must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.